Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 32, 8 through 11. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larissa. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 3, 1 through 4. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 15, 9 to 11, and chapter 16, 20 to 22. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your generosity to us. Lord, today as we open up the scriptures, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would breathe these words into us so that the entrance of your word would bring light and life. We pray these things to the glory of the Father in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you on this Sunday morning. We are uh, in the midst of a series here called Complete Joy. My name's Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. As you've heard a couple times this morning, New Life Downtown is one of the six congregations of New Life Church. And so all across our congregations, we're going through this series on Philippians. And very often in the fall, we'll go through a New Testament book. In the spring, we go through an Old Testament book. And so we've been going through this letter. It's a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. Now, Philippi was in this region called Macedonia, a, a Greek community that became a Roman colony. And when it became a Roman colony, 
they, they were all granted Roman citizenship, and these retired Roman generals uh, were given uh, uh, retirement benefits there in Philippi. Paul arrives in Philippi. We read the story in Acts 16, and he starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as the saving king. Uh, it creates all kinds of havoc. Paul ends up in jail in Philippi, and then there's an earthquake. He gets released. The jailer gets uh, comes to saving faith in Jesus, and then a woman named Lydia opens up her home, and she begins to lead a congregation there in Philippi. Now some years have passed, and Paul finds himself in jail again, and he's writing to this community, and he's encouraging them in the Lord. And so we've covered a number of things that Paul has written so far in this letter. He's talked to them about friendships and relationships and their partnership in the gospel. He's talked to them about discernment and wisdom and sharing the good news and the revolutionary kind of unity that comes about in Jesus and who Jesus is. There's this great hymn about Jesus in Philippians 2 and how we're supposed to live now that we're saved and what that actually looks like by looking at the saints among us, which we talked about last week. And now today we come to this section where the, for the first time this phrase appears in Philippians and Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I don't know if you were a Christian in the 80s or 70s, but maybe you remember that old song, Rejoice in the Lord always and again. Yeah, okay, we're not going to do it because then another group will start the next line, then we'll be in a round, and then we won't know what's going on anymore or how to end the song. <laughs> but maybe when you think about that song or any other kind of exhortation to rejoice, maybe this morning as we were singing and clapping and dancing or getting your groove on just like this right here, you know, whatever the case might be, maybe you hear those moments and those songs and those words and you think, oh gosh, Christians are living, I mean, living in such denial. Christians are naive. I mean, look, look at the world around us. Look at the headlines. Look at the tragedy. Look at the war. Look at the slaughter that's happening in Syria and with the Kurds. And how could this be? There's no way we can rejoice in the Lord. And the question for us this morning right off the bat is, is the call to rejoice in the Lord just another way for Christians to bury their head in the sand? Is this another version of us saying, la, 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 I don't want to know about anything that's happening out there. I'm just happy, happy, joy, joy. Or is it another version of Christians having their heads in the clouds where it doesn't matter about the injustice here and it doesn't matter about any of the inequities that happen here because one day we'll fly away. There's certainly some Christians who act and think like that, but this is not what Paul is saying. Neither is Paul saying to deny negative emotions. Maybe some of you grew up in a home where it was never okay to cry or never okay to be angry or never okay to be frustrated. And so to, to you, Paul just sounds like your dad. Stop it. Get over it. Knock it off. We're going to be happy. <laughs> you know? What is this joy that Paul is talking about? Let's start in Philippians 3, verse 1. He says, so then, my brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord. And then he says, it's no trouble for me to repeat the same things to you because they will help keep you on track. And actually, he's, he's, he's a warning them that he's about to repeat these words again and again. In fact, in chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He says, I'm not, it's, it's no trouble to me to say these things again because it's going to keep you on track. And then... 
If you were listening to Paul's letter being read out loud in this church at Philippi and there was a musician playing, maybe under this first line, you're like, oh, Paul, he's so happy. He's been happy this whole letter. What a happy Paul, you know. All of a sudden in verse 2, the musician would change to a minor key. Dun, dun, dun. And Paul then unexpectedly almost in verse 2 says, watch out for the dogs. And you're like, what? Who are the dogs, Paul? Watch out for the people who do evil things. Watch out for those who insist on circumcision, which is really mutilation. And you're like, Paul, what is going on? This is a polemic. It's an attack against a specific group of people and a specific teaching that has emerged in their midst. And it's a polemic that actually utilizes the, 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 the use of opposites. And many times in Paul's letters, he'll say, don't be like this, be like this. And so, so far, he's just come off talking to us about two outstanding individuals. He's talked to us about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And with regard to Epaphroditus, he said, welcome him. Honor people like him. And then like two lines later, he's like, and watch out for those dogs. And in fact, he says three repeated phrases, watch out, watch out, watch out. In the ancient world, you didn't write Greek in bold letters or underline or in all caps or whatever. But this would be like getting a text from Paul and he's like, rejoice in the Lord, happy emoji. And you're like, great. Then all of a sudden, all caps, watch out for the darks. I'm like, dude, what came over Paul? There's a switch in his tone here and he begins to warn us about something. And so just take a few moments this morning and examine this. Who is Paul talking about? Who's Paul talking about? Who, who are these people that are mutilators, that are trying to recommend a certain way of living? Paul is talking about the Judaizers. Judaizers were visiting teachers who posed as Christians, called themselves Christian teachers, but were actually emphasizing Jewish identity markers. Wait a minute, what are we, what? I know you didn't spend Saturday night brushing up on Jewish identity markers. So let me try to give you just a little brief history here. Let's go to school for just a few minutes, okay? When the nation of Israel split in two, the Assyrians took the, the northern kingdom and scattered them across the region. And then the Babylonians came and took the southern kingdom, often called Judah, and took them in, in exile into Babylon. And they lived in Babylon for some 70 plus years. All this happens in the Old Testament. And if you were a Jewish person, being carried off into captivity into Babylon, the number one question on your mind was, how can I still demonstrate faithfulness to Yahweh? How could I still show my allegiance to the covenant God, our God? How can we be true? And this is why, if you've ever heard stories about Daniel not eating certain food that the king was eating or not doing certain, th 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 these are stories that are meant to help us imagine what life was like for the people of God in a foreign place, in exile. And so what developed is they're in Babylon and they're looking around at each other and they're saying, okay, we don't have our temple. We can't worship. We can't just offer animal sacrifices. What are we going to do? We're cap captives here in Babylon. And so they began to develop certain key things that became like identity markers. One of them was about the food that they ate. And this wasn't because they had like food sensitivity issues or whatever. This was because they were saying, no, we can't eat the king's meat because we got to show that we're Jewish. 
We're different than that. We don't eat meat that has not been properly slaughtered and offered to idols and all that kind of thing. We, we can't do it. So one was about the things they ate, dietary restriction. Another was Sabbath keeping. And say they, they would try to show resistance and their day of prayer was their day of prayer and they would not work and they would try to figure out a way while living in Babylon to show that they were different. But a third way of kind of marking themselves out was circumcision. It was a way of saying we are different than the people around us. And so every Jewish male on the eighth day would be circumcised as a way of marking them out. Now as time goes on, Jesus arrives and he says, look, all of that has come to its culmination point in me. I'm bringing that story to a completion and so Paul understands this, and Paul's gospel has been, Jesus is the saving king, and all that is necessary is your faith in him. But all of a sudden, there were these other Jewish followers of Jesus who said, but that can't be. What about these other things? These other things really matter too. Now, some commentators call this or use the metaphor of an ID badge, okay? Now, some of you work in high-security clearance military bases, Okay, and you, you had to go through all kinds of checks and, and, and maybe a whole, you know, a whole career of, of uh, you know, unreproachable stuff to be able to say, I've got my security clearance. Imagine if you show up at work tomorrow with your security clearance badge and you hear, yeah, we don't need that anymore. You're like, what? Yeah, you're, you're bad. You don't, you don't need your badge. Just, do you have a Colorado driver's license? You're like, yes, but so does everybody else. And they're like, yeah, we're letting everyone in today. And you're like, excuse me, do you know what I did to get this clearance? Like, this is my ID badge. And they're like, yeah, put it away. You don't need that ID badge anymore. That's like what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, listen, God has always wanted to gather for himself a family from all the nations of the world. And Paul will make this argument. He'll say, look, all the way back to Abraham, all the families were meant to be blessed. And so you don't need to show your Jewishness. You just need to show your faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Show your faith in Jesus. Now, you can imagine, okay, that would create a bit of a ruckus for us if someone said your ID badge was no longer valid. But imagine just, well, don't imagine too hard, okay? But imagine these Jewish teachers showing up and finding Gentile Christians in the church and then saying, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's nice. But you need to get circumcised. And you're an adult male Gentile, and you're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and then they would say, well... And actually, if you're not, you're basically an evildoer. But you're fine. You can just hang out with us, but you're an evildoer. Or worse yet, these teachers began to call Gentile Christians dogs. And they would say, Jewish, Jewish followers of Jesus, yeah, you are special. Gentile followers of Jesus, you dogs. So Paul flips this very language and uses it on these teachers. And he says, watch out for those dogs the people who teach this are actually the ones that are subverting the good news of the gospel. The people that are preaching confidence in something else are actually subverting the good news. And, and it's kind of harsh to us. Like, man, Paul, why are you calling them dogs and evildoers? In the one, on one hand, he's revealing the true nature of their teaching. He's saying, this is, this is dangerous. This is damaging. And on the other hand, he's concealing their true identity. Paul's not interested in naming names. He's interested in exposing a false gospel, right? It'd be like me standing up here and preaching against the prosperity gospel, but not listing TV preachers by name. Because I'm not interested in creating personal vendettas. I'm interested in keeping you safe from 
false teaching. Does that make sense? So Paul says, let's call them dogs. Let's call them evil. But you've got to watch out for them. So what is Paul really warning against? Paul is really warning against placing your confidence in the wrong things. He's saying these teachers are creating such a stir because they're teaching you to put your confidence in things that are not worthy of your confidence. Like, well, what are some of those things? Listen to this in verse 3. He says, he says um, we are the circumcision. We are the ones who serve by God's spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus, King Jesus. We don't put our confidence in rituals performed on the body. Paul's saying, look, all of these special rituals, all of these specific things that mark you out as a Jew, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You just have to put your faith in Jesus, the saving king. We don't put our confidence in that. And then he says, though I have good reason to have this kind of confidence. If anyone else has reason to put their confidence in physical advantages, I have even more. Uh-oh, Paul's about to go now. He's like rolling up. He's like, okay, you want to go there? Let's go there. Let me tell you something. Like, do you know who I am? Let me just remind you of something. And then he starts listing some stuff. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I doubt you'll put any of these things on your resume, okay? But for Paul, this had special, <laughs> special cred. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now follow me for a moment. Paul is saying, I have reason to put my confidence in my national identity. I'm an Israelite. And then he says, not just my national identity, but my ethnic identity. In an age that generations had passed since the exile in Babylon, generations has passed, Paul was able to say, I can trace my lineage. I've, you want ethnic purity? I've got ethnic purity. Now, I am say this with soberness this morning. Because if only these were first century issues. If only these were perils and dangers of the ancient world. Confidence in a national identity or an ethnic identity have wrought great damage to our world over the, fa the last few hundred years. Last Christmas, a family member, a family from our church here in New Life downtown, Kurt and Deb Carber, uh, gave me a book, and it was a book on the story of the life of Martin Niemöller. I don't know if you know that name. He was a pastor in Germany in the 30s, and eventually he was arrested because he he found himself not being able to give support to the Nazi regime. And as things got worse, Niemöller eventually began to say something's wrong. And Niemöller is best known for this quote that appears on many Holocaust memorials. And the quote goes something like this. It's a poem. It's, it's called, Then They Came for Me. It says, First they came for the socialists, but I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, but I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then the poem goes, and then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. And it's a sober poem, and many people think of Niemöller as like, oh, you were part of the resistance against Hitler. But actually, in this biography, it shows that Niemöller was a conflicted character, like all of us are. And the reason it took him so long to wake up, and even when he did, it wasn't purely because 
of all the right reasons. But the reason that it took so long is because clergy and church leaders were being told that this was simply a message of national pride. This was simply a matter of helping Germany become strong again. It was simply a matter of dispelling the embarrassment of the end of World War I, and this was just about German pride. And so Niemöller thought, well, that's a good thing to have. It's only in hindsight that we saw the dangers of misplaced confidence in national identity. What about confidence in ethnic identity? It's interesting that the concept of race, race theory sort of gets invented right around the same time that European empires are exploiting the global south. Africa and Asia, behaviors are justified because of a theory that developed about superiority of certain races. Churchill would justify the British occupation in India by saying, well, this is an inferior race. Um, and if you, in case you think Gandhi was any better, Gandhi, when he spent some years in South Africa, appealed to the color bar, a hierarchy based on the color of your skin with the darkest being at the bottom and the lightest being on the top. And Gandhi appealed to the color bar to the British saying, treat me like you, not like them. The hypocrisy knows no bounds. Last week, Evan Riedahl and I got to spend some time. I was speaking at a pastor's conference in Virginia, and we snuck a couple hours of sightseeing in. We went over to Monticello, the home and estates of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was brilliant in so many ways, and his words have set the course for where we want to go with human dignity in this country. But it's interesting that five years after writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that five years after writing that, he wrote in the only book he ever wrote about the inherent inferiority of the African race. And so we find that confidence in the wrong kinds of identity can have disastrous consequences. I say this, now you can exhale, take the tension out of the room for a moment. I say this not to shame anyone, but to say that this remains a challenge with us today. That Paul's words ring true for us today. To say, wait a minute, don't don't go boasting about the wrong things or you'll find yourself excluding and exploiting people for the wrong reasons. Or there's no right reasons to do that. But Paul says you'll find yourself acting in ways that endanger and exploit others. And so he, Paul names it. He goes, I, if you want to boast about national identity, you want to boast about Jewishness, I could go there with you, but I'm not going to do that. In fact, he says, I consider that as nothing. And then he moves on. Okay, so exhale. We thank you for going there with me for a minute. And then he says, with respect to observing the law, I'm a Pharisee. And with respect to devotion to the faith, I used to harass the church. With respect to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Paul's like, what are you, what's the criteria? I win every time. <laughs> Tell me the game. I've got it. I have checked all of these boxes. And so he begins to appeal to a kind of religious performance, a way of saying, ah, I've got that. There were, in this, around this time, different kinds of Pharisee, and one kind of Pharisee was nicknamed the bleeding Pharisee because they would wear blinders kind of covering their eyes so that they wouldn't accidentally lust. And you can guess why they were called bleeding Pharisees, because they kept running into things. 
Like, not only are you not going to lust, you're not going to be able to see where you're going. And they kept bleeding, bumping into stuff. And they're like, yes, but we're so holy, we're so pure, we're so amazing. And Paul says, like, those are my people. Like, I'm a Pharisee. I was so good at this religious performance. You know, one of the unfortunate things, if you grow up in, in evangelical culture, is we make up awards for stuff. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, we were at a Christian school. Brian Bettis and I were in eighth grade together. And the school had made up this award called the Pastor's Award. Now, if you're a good Christian kid going to a good Christian school and you hear that there's an award called the Pastor's Award, you're like, I got I, I, I to win that award, you know? <laughs> Nobody tells you how you win that award, but someone gets nominated and they win. Well, I didn't win. And I was devastated. I mean, I, my little 13-year-old self was just crushed. I thought, oh. I, 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 that was me. I, I'm supposed to win that award. I did not win that award. And my parents, you know, just give you a little insight into our parenting growing up. They were so sweet. They comforted me. Oh, you know, you are amazing, all this stuff. They're encouraging me. And then my mom said, why don't you do a word study on humility? <laughs> <laughs> and so... She taught me how to use a Strong's Concordance and look up humility and all this. And I wrote this little essay on what humility is, you know. But it was a great little teaser about, are you sure you're not putting your confidence in the wrong things? Because at the end of the day, it's a made-up award. Like, what? Why do we do this stuff? And we sent our kids to some day camp, day, Christian day camp during the summer. And same thing, at the end of the week, they're like, the award for this and that. I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, Jesus isn't handing out stickers, you know. And Paul says, all of this stuff is, it's, you know you're making this up, right? Like, it's all nothing. And maybe some of you grew up in kind of purity culture where you thought of yourself as, as more superior than others because you didn't watch these kinds of movies, do this with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And so then you were like, okay, God really loves me. And you looked at someone else, and you knew what they were doing. You saw them in youth group, and you're like, hmm, thank God for the cross, but. <laughs> and you take pride in your religious performance. Paul says in verse 7, these things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, what are all the things you could put in the win column? Slide it over to the loss column. What are all the things you could chalk up and say, oh, these are my prophets. Look how, look all the things in my favor. Don't you think the scales are tipped in my favor? And Paul's like, mm, you've got it in the wrong column. Put it on the other side. All of these things I wrote off as a loss for Christ. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what Paul really pursues as the prize. And we're going to say, uh, we're going to look at what it what it means for Paul to really gain something. But today I want us to just camp out here about misplaced confidence for a bit longer. Here are three signs that you've placed your confidence in the wrong things. Just a couple of dashboard warnings. What are some signs that maybe you put your confidence in the wrong things? First of all, it's destroying you. Paul refers to these people as the mutilators of the flesh. He's like, look, if you make it all about these kinds of things, if this is what your confidence is in, it's going to end up destroying you. You're going to end up doing stuff that will hurt you. So let me, let me give you an example of this. For the person who puts their confidence in their bank account, they're going to end up, they could be tempted to end up destroying themselves 
to keep filling them. To say, well, it's not a bad thing to save. It's not a bad thing to invest. It's a really wise thing. It's a really good thing. But there's a sign here. If you just keep working and going until you pad it more and more and more, and, and it's destroying you, but you can't stop, that may be a sign you've placed your confidence in the wrong thing. If you end up saying, I've just got to go from relationship to relationship because I'm just not happy alone, and I, it, it, it may be that you've placed your confidence in the wrong thing. It ends up destroying you. But maybe relatedly, a second sign that you've placed your confidence in the wrong thing is that it's never enough. Like in The Greatest Showman, never, never, never enough. There's no finish line. You just don't know. How do I know? How much significance is enough significance? How much righteousness is enough righteousness? How many hours of serving is enough serving? I mean, have you ever had a conversation with a Christian and said, how's your prayer life? And they said, oh, I'm praying more than enough right now. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. That means you're honest. Because most of us are like, yeah, I'm not, no, I'm not praying enough. You know, how do we know? What's the finish line? How do we know what enough is? How much money is enough? How much influence is enough? How much goodness is enough? But thirdly, the third warning sign that you've placed your confidence in the wrong things is that it makes you constantly critical of others. The reason Paul was so strong about these false teachers is he says they're condemning you. They're calling you dogs and evildoers. And I want you to know that they, they've set the bar. They've got the wrong standard. They're using the wrong metrics. You know, just kind of in a, a humorous way. If you've ever um, been on a weight loss program, you know, and you've decided, I am going to lose 10 pounds before the holidays, and then I'm going to gain it back again. You know, <laughs> you put yourself on this, regimen this routine you're going to the gym and you're eating salads have you ever noticed that when you're in the throes of a really brutal weight loss program you become really critical of everyone who's not <laughs> you know like like you're driving down the road and you got your skinny almond milk protein shake and that's supposed to be your lunch all in eight ounces and you're like you know and then you look at the drive-through line at chick-fil-a and you're like gosh can you believe those people eating fried chicken <laughs> Like, that was you two weeks ago, right? But, but today, you are better than them. And you're like, man, I, you're at the gym at 6 a.m., and you're driving past all the houses that are still dark, and you're like, slackers. Like, you're going to have health issues. Not me, though. Not me. <laughs> Whenever you've placed your confidence in something, it becomes leverage for you to be critical of someone else. And that's a warning sign that's a warning sign that maybe you've got your confidence in the wrong stuff here. Uh, last week I read a, a thin little book by a Catholic writer named Ronald Rollheiser. And it's a book on prayer. And Rollheiser talked about the struggles that we face in life. And he said, very often, the first half of life, our wrestling is with the world, with all of its vices out there, our temptations. The second half of life, our wrestling is with God because we start to say to God, hey... There's a bunch of unfulfilled promises here, and what about this? And, and he talks about how so very often we hit a certain point in our life where anger comes more to the foreground than it used to when we were younger. And he says when, when you're young, your, your energy and your dreams kind of shield you from disappointment. 
So you, your first business idea flops in your 20s or when you're 30, you're like, it's fine. I got time. I'm going to keep going. But you're 50 and you're not a millionaire. Your business didn't take off or it's not the next Instagram or whatever. And you're like, man, God, why, God? What's happening? You have less resilience with the hurts and disappointments of life. And so anger begins to foreground. And you're like, I'm just angrier than I used to be. And Rollheiser says, when we age, we become more aware of our wounds, of our wasted potential, and the unfairness of life. We become critical of everyone else. They shouldn't be. They're getting things too quickly. They're this, they're that. They're, they're. Or maybe you've placed your confidence in the wrong stuff. So how do we break free from this? We go all the way back to the beginning of this chapter. Verse 1, so then, my brothers and sisters, be glad in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to repeat the same things to you because they will help, say it with me, they will help keep you on track. Rejoicing in the Lord keeps us from misplaced confidence. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, you won't find yourself placing confidence in the wrong stuff. You won't find yourself saying, well, what about that? No, I'm going to put all of my energy and joy in here. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Why does he keep repeating this? He's about to go on and talk about life situations being bad and being good. And he says, look, the key here is just to keep rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord, the second thing, points us beyond what joy comes through to where joy comes from. To illustrate this, I present the theology of the juice box. And this is Honest Kids Appley Ever After Organic Juice. Now, when you drink from a juice box, go like this, and you're like, hmm, that's pretty good juice. Not as sweet as what I'm used to, but that's pretty good juice. It's organic, <laughs> which means I'm judging you. And all of a sudden, you're like, man, this is such good juice. And you get fooled because your only point of contact is not with the juice box, but with the straw. And so you're like, well, I got to go over here. So I'm just going to take the straw with me, though. And you're like, ooh, last few drops. Man, it's so good. And then you're like, there's nothing happening anymore. Curse you, straw. You used to be so good to me. You used to bring the sweetness of life. And now you're empty. You're nothing. You're like air. And then you're like, one day you make a shocking discovery. The straw is hollow. You're like, I knew the truth about you, straw. You're empty. There's nothing to you. This is like what happens to us. Relationships, jobs. Like, I don't know my job. Eh, it's just kind of okay. I'm kind of sick of it. kind of over it. There's no joy there anymore. Yeah, this, these friends, my roommates... They're pretty hollow. They're empty. There's nothing to them. Eh. And on and on it goes. And you forgot that the straw was what joy came through, not where joy comes from. 
And Paul will say, he says, look, there's nothing wrong with relationships. In fact, early in the letter, he says, you bring me such great joy. He'll talk about his friendships. He'll talk about all the stuff that brings him joy. There's no doubt God meets us with joy through our friendships and our relationships and through our work and through our fruitfulness in the kingdom. But Paul says, but don't make any mistake about it. The joy doesn't come from them. The joy comes from Jesus. And so you need to put the straw back in the juice box and rejoice in the Lord. That's what he's saying. Put the straw back in the juice box. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in anything else. Not in, and yeah, because of, sure, there can be other reasons for joy, but there can only be one source. It's Jesus himself. And so finally, rejoicing in the Lord reminds us of what we have in Jesus. So as the worship team comes this morning, I want us to think about this this morning. What is it that we've been given in Jesus? What is it that we actually have in Jesus? These citizens of Philippi, these people in Philippi may have been really glad to be citizens of Rome, granted citizenship. Caesar has been good. Caesar promises freedom and peace and salvation. And Paul says, let me tell you about King Jesus. He says, King Jesus is the one who emptied himself for you. King Jesus is the one who went all the way to the cross for you. King Jesus is the one who rescued you. King Jesus is the one that has a great and glorious hope for you. King Jesus is the reason why I'm confident that he who began a good work will complete it one day. King Jesus is the reason that your future is glory regardless of what your past was. King Jesus is the reason for your confidence. And so Paul says, you come together as the church and don't rejoice because you had a good week. Don't rejoice because, you oh, know, I was pretty good. I, I read my Bible. I didn't get mad at my coworkers. Rejoice not because you've been good. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. This is our reminder every week because every day you're going to walk out of this room and you're going to be bombarded with messages that says, Rejoice in how fit you are. Rejoice in how wealthy you are. Rejoice in how you know, wonderful all of the commercials on TV. Rejoice in the good life that looks like this. And every Sunday we got to come back and say, no, 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 no. I'm not rejoicing in my job. I'm not rejoicing in my friend. I'm thankful for all of those things. But let me tell you something. I am rejoicing in the Lord. That's where my confidence comes from. Not in your moral performance. Saints and sinners come on level ground before Jesus. All of us. This is why Paul thought these teachers were saying something so dangerous because Paul, because Paul wants us to know male or female, Gentile or Jew, slave or free in the kingdom of God. The only thing any of us have to boast about is Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection and his return, his reign. That's all we have. Anything else, put it in the lost column. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. So would you bow your heads this morning? Come to the table to remember, to rejoice in the Lord. To let go of false confidences, misplaced confidence, and to return again to Jesus. Jesus.